This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with Roger D. Hodge, deputy editor of The Intercept and author of a new book, Texas Blood. An ominous title with an equally ominous subtitle, Seven Generations Among the Outlaws, Ranchers, Indians, Missionaries, Soldiers, and Smugglers of the Borderlands. Your ancestral home, Roger. And in the opening chapter, you raise two hard questions. Why would anyone attempt to settle this unforgiving landscape? And what were they searching for in what you call the devil's own country? Maybe you can begin by telling us where it is, in what part of Texas, and attracting what kind of people. Well, thank you for having me here, Lewis. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. The, the, the book begins and ends on the Devil's River in southwest Texas. It's really where West Texas begins. It's just west of the 100th meridian. It drains into the Rio Grande, and it's a place where several rivers come together, the Pecos, the Devil's River, and the Rio Grande. And it's also a place where different climatic and uh, ecological zones come together. And as we know, it's a place where two great countries come together. And it's, it's where you were born. You were born within sight of the Devil's River, or at least the River Canyon? Uh, not quite. I was born in the hospital in Del Rio. Okay. But that's not far away. Not far away. Okay. But you, you kind of grow up on a ranch or a tract of land. Yes, a ranch. In the Devil's River. On the Devil's River and, and thereabout. The headquarters for the Beaver Lake Ranch, which is the one that I, I write about in the early pages of the book, is in the Devil's River Canyon. You're born when, Roger? 1967. 1967. And you are a seventh generation of your family? Uh, actually, I would be uh, sixth uh, generation in Texas. My children's generation count as the seventh uh, because they play a uh, they play a little part in the book, and their their encounter with this landscape is part of of what I'm writing about. All right, well, spend a, f- a few minutes on your your youth. I mean. You're wearing jeans, you're shooting rabbits, I mean, and you're learning to tell a difference between a, a lizard and a mesquite tree? More or less. Uh, I, I grew up there, I grew up working on these ranches, and, uh, and learning to be, what I, what I thought I was doing was learning to be a rancher. I always thought that my destiny growing up was to be, to, was to live off the land, to, to, to run my family's ranches, and to, uh, to continue this culture that I had brought, been brought up with, been brought up in. And when, when my father discovered that that was what was in my mind, he sat me down for a talk and explained that the ranching world was passing away, that it wasn't really possible for me to be a rancher in the way that I thought I was going to be. And he... Uh, explained that I was going to have to find some other way to make a living and that the, I could always, we would always hold on to the land, but I wasn't going to be living off the land in the way that I had imagined. And I think that set me on the path to being a writer because that was, 
that was a crisis that sent me out of Texas, really. Sent me to Tennessee, North Carolina, New York. It sent me to Harper's Magazine. Where you were managing editor when I was editor, Roger, and uh, then become the editor of the magazine. You, and you are a truly fine writer, I'm happy to say. And th this book is a joy to read. But the, uh, So you grew up on the ranch. Uh, what, what, what were you ranching? Sheep? Sheep and goats. Uh, Rambouillet sheep, which, which is a... Both the wool, we used to call them back when there were, when there was a, a sheep industry in Texas, dual purpose sheep. They were both, wool, they were both, they were raised for fine wool and for meat. We also raised Angora goats, which, uh, which is where you get mohair. And we had, we ran cattle, but the, it's not good cattle country. The, we had, we had some cattle. Uh, why, why was it becoming impossible to be a rancher? Why, why would? Did your father tell you that there was no more to be had out of the game? Well, that has to do, with, I think, with large economic forces that, that are determined nationally and internationally. The United States has never made a commitment to family-scale agriculture. The, 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 the long trajectory of agriculture in the United States is toward big agribusiness, all the tax and uh, tariff and policy decisions are made with a view toward extremely large scale ranching, farming, and so on. And eventually that, those market pressures create, just cause the sheep and goat industry to collapse. There are still some big operations, but they're, they're not necessarily associated with, with families and they, uh, they, they, they participate in an economy of scale that's really beyond what, uh, what we think of as the ranching community. And now those ranches are all empty of livestock. The fences are down, and there's, there, are, there are toy ranches that are bought up by wealthy oil men or tobacco lawyers or environmental groups that... Uh, you know, pr might pretend to go that kind of go through the motions of ranching, but it's not it's not at all the same thing. Why why is this part of Texas, this southwest desolate landscape that you, you describe? I mean, it has a harsh, austere beauty. I mean, you're very good at describing landscape, but why why the long record of violence? In, in the in the borderlands. That's one of the things. One of the questions I set out to answer when I first began working on this idea, the the on 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 the themes, writing about the themes that became this book. I was I was still working with you at Harper's. Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men came out in 2005, and in early 2006, I published an essay exploring a lot of those themes. And when that book came out, people thought it was unrealistic. It was too violent. It, 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 it was a fantasy of, of, it was a thriller. It didn't have any connection to reality. And that, and that was one of the things I tried to dispel and refute in my essay. You quote from McCarthy in your book. You say, McCarthy's novels are messages from lost worlds, artifacts of vanished histories. His characters are solitaries, dying animals, fugitives from the present who go forth into the rotten holdings of the vanquished in search of something they cannot name. So that's the question you ask, right? Yes, in some, in some sense. And what I, what I was trying to 
you, you, you mentioned it earlier that I wanted to understand what had happened to the place, what had happened to the border country since I'd been away. And in order to do that, I had to understand why my ancestors had ended up there to begin with. I wanted to understand more fully what was the, the lure of that rough country. All right, well, let's start with your ancestors. Let's start with, I mean, this is the Wilson family, yes. right? And when do they first come, and, and where do they make what you call La Entrada into the... Uh, <laughs> Into the uh, into Texas. The the particular branch of the Wilsons that that I'm descended from came to Texas in 1854. My great 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 grandfather Perry Wilson and my great 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 grandmother Wellman Wilson came down the Texas road from Western Missouri in 1854. So this is before the Civil War, yes. and not too long after the Mexican War. That's right. Okay, and what were they in search of? That's a very good question. Uh, it's hard to say for sure because they left nothing in writing other than property records. Perry was a wanderer. He was born in 1828 in East Tennessee near Knoxville. His family moved to Missouri in, in the late 1830s. He, grow, he grows up there surrounded by all of these speculators and pioneers and everything, the entire Western migration was staged from Western Missouri. All the trails started there. He was a 49er. He went to California a number of times before he came to Texas. Maybe he came to Texas before 1854. We're not really sure. I suspect he did. At any rate, he goes back to Missouri in 1854, marries his sweetheart and brings her from Western Missouri to Western, Western Texas and starts running cattle. And he runs cattle along with his brother Levi, who must probably came at the same time, I'm not exactly sure, ran cattle along the Red River in some of the most beautiful, lush, tall grass prairie you can imagine. It's now, the where best is it? cattle yep. country. That's in North Texas. That's in North Texas, in, in Clay and in, in Montague counties. And he prospers. I think he prospered, but for whatever reason, he was restless. He kept pushing west. He kept moving along, and he takes Wellmet and their two boys, and 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 lo and I, I and I'm sure he was with other people, but Levi didn't go with him, and heads back to California, taking the Southern Road up the Devil's River, across the Pecos, across the Trans Pecos, which is a hard, hard road without water for sometimes 30, 40, 50, 100 miles through El Paso, and then westward across the um, Chihuahua Desert toward California. Wellman didn't survive that trip. She well, died. Wellman was his sweetheart and then wife. Yes, and my grandmother, thrice great. And she dies somewhere near Yuma on that road. And so he eventually gets, makes his way back to Texas with those boys, remarries, and runs cattle again, same place. But he's, he's always buying and selling ranches and moving from one place to another. It's in South Texas and what we call West Texas, which is really just kind of the edge of western edge of Central Texas, what often people called West Texas at the time. Have you ever figured out what he was searching for? Buying and selling and moving and going and coming? And I think he was following his fortune. He, I think he was, in some sense, just following the water, following the wind. I think it's, it's impossible to know. But what I try to do is find witnesses who were doing the same thing at the time, who left writing, that I can 
that I can use to tell, the, in, a, in a vicarious way, tell their story and tell the story of all these other wanderers who were swarming over the, the West and, and engaging uh, in essentially a, a, a campaign of, of conquest against the native peoples who lived there. And at that point in time, 1850s and 60s, who are the native people? Well, by that time, the incredible diversity of native peoples that were encountered by the Spaniards have either been assimilated into the Mexican people or assimilated into other invaders like the Apaches. The Apaches came, uh, began to, were one of the main northwestern in invaders into that from the native side. Then the Comanches, and the Comanches by the 1850s were, in, in some sense, the dominant political power in North America, west of the Mississippi. Yes, you mentioned something called the Comanche Empire. What was that? The Comanche Empire, which we've only really begun to recognize as a political entity that existed for 200 years and was one of the great adversaries of Mexico and the United States, stretched across the Great Plains and dominated western Texas, eastern New Mexico, Oklahoma, Arkansas, the whole Arkansas Valley, up into the up into the Rockies. And they had an incredibly sophisticated society that was completely invisible to to Anglos, to the United States. And were really they were they were an object of fear because they raided all along the the margins of their empire and engaged in a process of re really reverse colonization uh, in Texas and, and, and in New Mexico. And the Spanish had dealt with them for so long, they had kind of a modus vivendi. They, they had learned to live with them, but the, Texas, the Texans didn't. They didn't understand. They didn't understand the Comanches, and they didn't care to understand the Comanches. And it took the Texans almost 100 years to defeat them. You, you uh, mentioned a couple of horrific raids staged, I think, by the, at least, well, there are several horrific raids in, in, <laughs> in this book, some of them staged by the Yuma, uh, others by the Comanche, I think. Describe one of them. Or, or do, who were the Palmer people? Well, the Palmers uh, were some hard-shell Baptists who came into Texas in the 1830s, and, and if you've seen the searchers or, or read some of the... the uh, accounts of Cynthia Ann Parker. It's the Parker family you're thinking of. I'm sorry, the Parker family. Um, Quanah Parker was, people call him the last chief of the Comanches. He was really, in a sense, the first chief of the Comanches because they didn't really have a global chief. But he was the son of Cynthia Ann Parker who was kidnapped in a raid on Parker's fort and became a Comanche. She was... She was fully assimilated into the, into the group and, and married Peta Nakona, one of uh, the, the, the great chiefs of that time. And the Parker family, those who survived that raid, searched for her for years and years and years. And her story is incredibly sad because she lost everything twice. She lost her family once when she was taken by the Comanches. And then she lost them again when she was taken by the Texas Rangers and she lost her husband and her sons. And this story has been told many times, uh, and it's one that you can't get around. And I, I, I write about 
about this uh, in the larger context of trying to put the, the, the Comanche Empire into the context of, of that period. And, what and were some of the details of the raid? I mean, the, in what year? The, what, scalping and torturing and The, the Comanches were brutal. They, they, they uh, definitely were probably the finest light ca cavalry in history. They would, they would swoop down on a settlement, and maybe they'd walk up and ask if they could have a cow for meat or something like that, or they'd just attack. But in this particular raid, as it was described by the survivors, there were a couple of survivors, they, uh, they asked for some meat, and when, I um, can't remember which of the Parker men first went out to speak with them, the gate was open to their compound. He, he turned them down, and it, it, that was his fatal error. Uh, if if he had just given them the given them a beef to to take, they might have uh, avoided the uh, the slaughter. But they would scalp and rape and 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 mutilate, like most Native American groups when engaging in warfare. Na Native warfare was was a brutal thing, and and the Texans were, of course, equally capable of of doing all those things as well. Yeah, I mean, over time, I mean, the the Anglos, the settlers, become themselves accustomed to taking scalps. Well, they were the innovators in that, actually. Uh, explain that to me. <laughs> uh, well, I write about a couple of different scalpers. One of them was James Santiago Kirker, who was one of the most notorious of, of these uh, mountain men turned scalpers. He was a trader. He was born in Northern Ireland. Uh, came to the United States, worked as a grocer in New York City, eventually made his way to Missouri, as it seemed every uh, berserk criminal in the United States did, and then came and began trapping in the Rockies and eventually got a contract from the leading men of Chihuahua City in Mexico, who had formed a group called the Society for, Make for the Extermination of the Barbarians. By whom they meant the Indians. By whom they meant the Apaches, in particular, to uh, and put a bounty on, the cal on Apache scalps, and so he, as it later turned out, uh, was began taking both Apaches and Mexican uh, villagers. So he eventually fell out with Chihuahua, but uh, they later hired him again, and he he really uh, he was the most notorious figure in the uh, war, what's called the War of Apache Scalps. He later fought for the, in, for the United States in the Mexican War and led the, the, uh, the attack on Chihuahua. And then you also have John Glanton, who appears in, in Cormac McCarthy, who was a historical figure. He was, in, he was one of the main characters in Blood Meridian. Yeah, he was the judge. That's not the judge. No. The judge was a, was, is a character who uh, rides in Glanton's gang, Glanton was another deserter from the Mexican War. And I write at some length about one of McCarthy's sources, uh, an extraordinary document called My Confession by Sam Chamberlain, which it's an illuminated manuscript, an account of his adventures uh, and, uh, and the great fun he had writing with these, with these scalpers, among other things. And he describes this character of the judge 
for the first time. And McCarthy takes up these characters and, and turns them into his great novel. I mean, these are, these are violent men. Yes. Small digression on the Mexican War. I mean, I mean that is an invasion, really, by Anglos on, on you know, against Mexico. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a big land grab. Oh, yeah. We, con we conquered northern Mexico, no doubt about it. We, we fomented a, a revolution in one of their northern provinces 10 years prior. So this landscape, I mean, it's been, the, that too is the borderlands, right? Yes. I mean, the Mexican wars across the borderlands, right? I mean, the, the Anglos coming into Texas, uh, you know, from the very beginning of the, when, the late 18th century, earlier, yeah. uh, are coming as uh, conquerors. At first they came as traders and explorers and, and soon came as, as settlers, and it was, it was a form of settler colonialism. And the Mexican government used, the, used the, the Anglo colonists as a kind of buffer. They hoped that the, that the Anglo Texans, that Austin's colony and others who came in, would act as a buffer against the Comanches. That's what they were hoping. I see. At, because they, the Comanches had been raiding northern Mexico okay. just mercilessly. And they helped pave the way. The Comanches actually helped pave the way for the conquest of northern Mexico. Let us go back to your, your family, the Wilsons. I mean, pick one of the most dramatic of your ancestors. I mean, was, was there a Texas Ranger? Was there a, a uh, particularly accomplished uh, conquistadore? Well, I would say Perry was the most dramatic because he was the one who brought the family... To Texas, he was the one who who never stopped. This is the first one. He's right. the first one. Okay. And he he was known as as a, a he he shows up in various compilations of of Texas Indian fighters and uh, he shows up in various oral histories. He was a cattleman, a forty niner, and right. also a precursor to the Texas Rangers during the Civil War. The western frontier, the western border with the Comanches, fell back a hundred miles. Clay County was completely abandoned, and everything was burned. And mo many of the men, most of the men, were off being cannon fodder in the Civil War. But those who remained patrolled the western border to to protect the the settlers there, the Anglo settlers from the Comanches. And he was, he, I found his records in the Texas archive. He and Levi were both part of what was called the Texas Guard during the Civil War. In the Texas, Texas comes in on the side of the Confederacy. Yes. Talk about, I mean, so, because among the very first settlers of eastern Texas or southern uh, planters who, who bring slaves with them, it, this is into the that beautiful Red River country that you talk about, right? The, well, the, the northern prairie? There weren't a whole lot of slaves in that northern prairie. That, that was mostly in the, east, in the east of Texas. Okay. Um, but, but Perry and, and Levi and, and the others, were, they were there in that Red River country. And most of those counties voted against secession. 
it was it was really the 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 hotbed of of slave power in Texas was to the east where all yes, the planters right, yeah, were. Yes, yeah, right to the east. Okay, yeah. and it, there's a description in your book, if I remember correctly, that of Frederick Law Olmsted. Yes, uh, in the 1850s has something to say about the uh, sl- the slaveholding class in that part. He does. His analysis... He, so, Olmsted, before he was an architect, was a journalist. And he got an assignment to come to Texas as part of his, his ramble through the, all of the slave states. He wrote one book uh, about the, the, uh, the Southeast, and then he, the next book for, for was... For the listener may not know... Olmsted, he's the man who designs Central Park. Yes, yeah. Frederick Law Olmsted. Oh, yeah, all right, so go ahead. And but. so he's writing for the New York Daily Times and ride, goes on a saddle trip through Texas and writes one of the most penetrating pieces of cultural criticism and travel literature that I've ever read. It's the best book on Texas. And what he sees is the corruption that arises directly from slavery, the, the cultural corruption, the, the kind of moral sloth that arises from owning other human beings. And he, and he brings this to life powerfully in his encounters with, with small-scale farmers and planters as he rides along, and, and the, the very powerful contrast that he draws between these slaveholders and the German settlers who were, who were not, by and large, for the most part, uh, slaveholders, and the difference in their homesteads and the pride that the Germans took in, in their homes and the, the pride that they took in, 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 in making butter and wheat flour and wheat bread, whereas the, the slothful uh, slaveholding whites of East Texas for the most part, you know, they they wouldn't put they wouldn't bother to put glass in their windows or chink their the the logs and they would just survive on on bacon and cornbread basically um, and wouldn't really improve their surroundings because because it was too much trouble. He heard that again and again. Only a only a only a black man only a slave would actually perform physical labor. The the only proper vocation for uh, a Texan, in this view, was hunting and, and selling, selling the, um, the cotton that his slaves uh, picked. The subsequent generations, all right, Perry is a, the first of the Wilsons of your family. Now, what about generation, and you're the sixth, so what about generations two, three, four, and five? Well, his, his kids, Perry had a lot of kids. The, the one who I'm descended from is T.A., uh, T.A. is the one who is the person who brought the family to the permanently to the Devil's River. They had drifted cattle through the Devil's River for decades, but T.A. in the late eight, in the early, like 1890, 1891, came to the Devil's River with his children. Meanwhile, Perry had gone back west, and he was going back to California, and he ended. He stopped in Arizona, and that's where that's as far as he got on that trip. He died in Phoenix in 1899, I believe. But T.A. came to the Devil's River, and he was interested in sheep and goats. So he's the one who really began the sheep and goat ranch. In, 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 in Devil, Devil's Canyon. Along the Devil's River. Yeah, and that's where you're from. Right. And then his children, 
continued uh, in some way. I mean, not all of them continued in that in the in ranching. They, the one who who really continued was was B. E. Wilson, um, great grandfather. When does he arrive and where? So he's again he's born there uh, on the Devil's River. He's he's that third generation of Texan. T. A. had lost most of his his land because he. Uh, would he had a bad habit of signing co-signing notes for friends and then the friends would default on the loan and TA would lose his ranch so BE we called him we called him Dandy uh, his children and grandchildren called him Dandy he he started buying up land little bits and pieces bought the, bought the land that his father had lost and expanded his holdings and eventually put together one of the largest ranches in the county and ran thousands and thousands of head of sheep and employed hundreds of men at the peak of the operation. Then his daughter married Roger Hodge, my grandfather. And that's when the, the name switches to Hodge. Cause the, okay. And, then, and, and, and he was known as Wally. So Wally Hodge ranched uh, and continued the ranching. And he already saw the, the economic problems coming and my father byron hodge really kind of keenly saw it and and he's been presiding over this this kind of late stage of the ranching culture where all the cattle all the sheep all the goats are gone we now run spanish goats and have a hunting operation where is your father still alive he is he is and but my he... grandmother is is still alive my 96 year old grandmother annalee hodge still is the matriarch of the family operation She's the one that taught you how to shoot a rifle when you were a child, right? Well, I think it was my father who taught me how to shoot a rifle, but my grandmother is a very good shot. And there's a photo of her shooting targets in, in the book. I uh, should tell the, the uh, people listening to the program that there's there are wonderful photographs in the book of the, of the landscape that gives a sense of its... Uh, I, 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 I would call it an austere beauty would you agree i would with agree it's very austere and to me it's it's one of the most beautiful landscapes i've ever encountered but of course i i'm a little biased <laughs> yeah, right uh, but one of the things that where I have we seen the landscape have we seen that landscape in a movies with tommy lee jones well a film was made of no country for old men but it wasn't shot in that area it wasn't even shot in the pecos country it was, it was shot west uh, of there and in, in near Marfa and in New Mexico because that's more cinematic. Uh, okay. But one thing I should say is one of the things that drove me to write about No Country for Old Men was that McCarthy set that opening scene, that opening aftermath of the shootout where, where Llewellyn finds the, the, the suitcase full of cash. He set that on our ranch. I see. And it just, the, the way he describes it, he places it very precisely just west of Lozier Canyon, which puts it right on our property. So that was one of the things that I, I was so powerfully struck by was that he, he saw, he, he did enough research to know that that part of Texas has continued to be almost a superhighway for drug trafficking. Now, did you see drug trafficking when you grow up? Oh, certainly. Uh, I mean, I saw drug use. Uh, well, I sure. mean, yes, but I mean... But I actually, did I actually witness someone smuggling... No, 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 I don't, I don't mean that, but was it going on? Oh, sure, definitely. During, during... Definitely, and it was really picking up in the 80s. 
one of the things I was grappling with was the was this militarization on the border, which was created in response to a phantom threat, the the threat the purported threat of terrorism, come and terrorists crossing the border after 9/11. People had this idea that this could happen. So there was the Secure Fence Act of 2006, which led to the first round of building of the buildup where they put all of these tall fences in various places along the border. Is this where President Trump wants to build a wall? Well, apparently, uh, he, the, the, the wall that he wants to build uh, is a kind of a fantasy object as well. Anyone who's spent any time in that canyon country knows that, that it's really just not possible to build a 30-foot concrete wall through West Texas, but you could sure do a lot of damage trying. Are the migrants still coming over the border? Sure. And, do, and are they coming for the same kinds of reasons that, that brought your family to the... I think so. ...to West Texas? One of the things that the book is about is the, is the migration of peoples. Right. And, and, and so as I trace these paths, I try, what I try to do is evoke the layering of history and the, the different groups that have passed through this country, this part of the country at different times. So there are the, the various Indian groups who pass through, the Humanos and the Gisquesale and the Bobole and, the, and all of these, these wonderful names that are almost lost to us now. And then there are these, the, the, the Apaches and the Comanches that we, we are more familiar with and then the, Ang the Spanish and the Mexicans and the Anglos and all of these people, are, they're, they're all searching for something. They're all searching for a better life. They're searching for safety and security and fortune. Maybe they're just searching for water. Maybe they're, one of the, one of the peoples that uh, I write about, we call them the Pecos River people. We have no idea what, what they were called or what other people called them. They left, they were there three, 4,000 years ago, and they left these magnificent paintings on the, on, the, on the shelter, the rock shelters and in the caves. And what I spend a lot of time with archaeologists who, who study these, these rock art, this rock art. And what they've determined is that this was, the par this was part of the migration into, into Mexico. You mean across the, uh, the land bridge in the Bering Sea? Well, no, much, much later than that. Uh, coming out of, out of the Great Basin in the, in, the, in the southwestern United States, down through uh, Texas, through Mexico, down in, and, and these were the ancestors of the Huichol and the Maya and the Aztecs, and we see their cosmology painted on the, on the rock walls, and it's incredibly beautiful, and, it's, and what we think probably was driving that migration was climate change. Because the the climate is always changing, whether whether we're direct, directly responsible for particular periods or not, they were responding to a kind of climate change as well, and they were following the water, and they believed we can tell from their paintings, and based on the ethnographic information we have about the Huichol and the Maya and the Aztec, that their their actions were directly responsible for whether the sun came up, whether the rain fell, whether the, whether the grass grew. And if they didn't, if they didn't take their, their duties seriously, the world would surely die. And it's, to me, it was incredibly moving to learn this in, these, in this incredibly dry place. Uh, 
as we're grappling with larger issues of climate change and whether or not we're going to do our duty to preserve human life on this planet. Your last chapter is called Emotion of Limbs, right? Yes. Which is about the constant traveling of, of, across these borderlands. And the destruction it often leaves in its path. Destruction of the landscape of different industries, of different peoples. Uh, so it has a, a tragic cast to it, I think. Yes, I, mean, I think so too. The story of this landscape. It could be, the, of course, the story of the planet as a whole if we continue on the way we're going, right? Yes. Let's uh, read for, for a farewell. Re okay. re read that wonderful passage that you have on page 198, beginning. So this is from the McCarthy section, and I'm, I'm describing his, his work in general. Uh, but it's also but it's, describing your work. But it's also, it's also it, yes, I think it's, it, it goes kind of to the heart of, yeah. Of, yeah. of the themes that I'm writing about. And what I was setting out to, the questions I was setting out to answer. McCarthy's youths all set out to recapture something lost and elusive. One, the nameless kid of Blood Meridian, born in 33 like his author, though in a different century, is so ignorant and damaged that he knows not for what he searches or even that he searches at all. He simply drifts and in drifting finds his vocation as a hunter of men, an Indian killer, and a traitor in scalps. Even as he participates in the slaughter of men and women and children, both Indian and Mexican, he seems somehow other than his compatriots and especially other than, the, than Judge Holden, one of the most vivid and demonic characters in American literature. The judge accuses the kid of a tacit treachery, an unwillingness to give himself over completely to the task of war, war not only on the Indian, but against all autonomous life. The freedom of the birds is an insult to man, says the judge, who would have them all in zoos. Well, that's a summation of what some of the our own destruction of the of, of the environment has been taking place low these many years. Roger, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. The book, I, I have to say, is a joy to read because Thank it you. it's hard to generalize and summarize because it's the devil of it is in the details. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We've been talking today uh, to Roger D. Hodge about his new and very fine book, Texas Blood. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.